If you were to uh, ask the average person what their hope is for heaven or eternal life, if you just went out on the street and just started asking people, they would likely say something like, well, I'm a good person. Or if the word good sort of stuck in their throat even as they said it, they might say something like, I'm not a bad person. And I try. The assumption is that if they've tried not to be a bad person, they will somehow slip into heaven's gate, no questions asked. I think most people feel this way because they do one of or both of these things. Either they measure themselves externally, that is, they look at their conduct in life, and they only count what they've actually done. So murder and adultery and theft and slander, and although they, they will think of bad things they have done, they, they won't be guilty of those kind of bad things every day, at least most people. So the bad things will sort of fade from memory, and whatever wickedness is in their hearts, they don't even acknowledge it on that level. The second thing most people do is they measure themselves by other people. And since we all see other people's sins as worse than our own, we always come out looking pretty good when we do that. We can't believe that we would miss out on the eternal rewards that obviously everybody else would enjoy because when you ask them if they're going to heaven, they all think they are too. And of course, that assumes that everyone else will be in heaven, but we know, we know they will because at all the funerals we go to, someone always says that the person's in heaven. So... Um, and they're no longer suffering and all of that. So we know that. But what if the measuring rod that we're using when we do that, when people do that, is, is wrong? What if the standard we've measured ourselves by is wrong? What if the external things aren't the only things that count and, and maybe five or six big sins in your life are serious instead of having to do them every day to really be guilty of something? And what if other people is the wrong standard for us to measure ourselves by? Why do we make all kinds of assumptions about the afterlife without even having a basis for that, except just sort of the general mood that we happen to be in? If we turn to God's revealed word, the Holy Scripture, we find that our assumptions are completely wrong. Jesus Christ says that men are evil and that only God is good. He says that right there in the Gospels. And if only God is good, then where does that leave us? Well, I guess it leaves us with, well, I'm not bad and I try. The Old Testament says that there are no righteous people, and that is a claim that is repeated in Romans chapter 3, verse 10, which says, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. The divine measurement by which humanity is revealed to be not good not worthy and not godly, that measurement is the law of God. If you look at verse 19 of chapter 3, Paul says, We know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The law reveals sin. Salvation, eternal life, then, is simply out of reach if being good or keeping God's rules or whatever is the way to get into heaven. That's why salvation, according to the Bible, requires such a narrow and specific solution, answer. Because to do it by the I'm going to be a good guy way, the Bible says, God's word says, flat out, no flesh will be justified before God through that, through law keeping. Why? Because we don't keep it. And the narrow view 
the idea that no man is worthy or even close to worthy of heaven, that salvation then has to come from outside of us because we can't earn it. And only that which God does rescues us from our sinful condition and takes away our guilt. That salvation is provided in a Savior, Jesus Christ, the only Savior there is. Verse 21 says, Now apart from the law, that's a really important phrase, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Being justified, here's how it comes, as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. So salvation is a gift of divine grace, a free gift. And there's no other way because that is the only way for sinners to make it into heaven. Sinners being defined as those who have broken the law of God. So salvation is measured, worthiness is measured by righteousness, that's God's ruler, and we are not righteous, but Jesus Christ is righteous. And God will give us his righteousness. Verse 21 says, apart from the law. And we receive that righteousness by faith. That's the Christian gospel. That salvation comes apart from law by the grace of God. And that brings us to the question of what role the law plays in the Christian life after one has come to Christ and received eternal life. We are saved by grace apart from law. So do we need the law? Much of religion is built around the idea of divine law as a rule and a measure. But somehow, those who are most committed to divine law as a measure seem to miss out on the conclusion of the measure. When you actually do the measurement, the conclusion is that we are evil. And the only hope is grace, God's free gift. And some, even after acknowledging the need of grace to find salvation, then turn to law and ritual to define the spiritual life. Rules are what matter. And the focus is on keeping laws. Now, there's a problem with that focus, a, a serious problem. There's actually several problems. But the most significant problem is that it doesn't work. The Christian life is not designed to be to succeed by being centered around law. It's not designed to succeed by being centered around law. Once we are saved by grace through faith, once we are justified before God by the righteousness of Christ, and have his divine righteousness, our spiritual purpose is in living in a manner that represents and honors our God and Savior. So the question is, how do we do that? And we've been studying Romans chapters 6 through 8, you can kind of head in that direction now, which focus on the question of sanctification, how to lead a holy life. A Christian is a redeemed and renewed creature. A Christian has been given wonderful capacities by God to be victorious over sin. We've been talking about that the last few weeks. Indeed, according to chapter 6, our union with Christ by the Spirit is so real and so genuine that in a real sense, our old self, our fallen, unbelieving, wicked self, in some real way has died with him on the cross. So this chapter 6, verse 4 says, 
as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. In a very real sense, your pre-Christian self is dead and you're a new person. So Paul offers his prescription for holiness, which we've talked about previously. Um, the first thing he says is you need to know something, verse 6 of chapter 6, knowing that our old self was crucified with him, that our body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is free from sin. You have to know that. And you have to make a consideration. You have to reckon on something. Verse 11, Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. You need to account, make accounting that that's true every day. And then you have to present yourself. Verse 13, Do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Those three things are the key to victory over sin. The secret of victory is living under the grace of God, which awakens us to the beauty of holiness and teaches us, as we saw last time, to deny worldliness and ungodly desires and all of that. And as Paul says in verse 14, sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Grace is the reality that frees you from sin, not only its penalty, but from its power. Indeed, the first six verses of chapter 7 affirm that our death with Christ in that crucifixion, that we are joined to him, that frees us from our obligation to the law. He even says we've died to the law. The law doesn't even apply to people that are dead. We have a new relationship to God's law. We're no longer under it. It's not our master. Verse 4 of chapter 7, Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ that you might be joined to another. To him who was raised from the dead that we might bear fruit for God. For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. But now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the Spirit and not in oldness of the letter. Now that brings us to the whole question of the law itself. What good is it? I mean, so far it seems like Paul has sort of studied the law with his talk about grace, that it's been accounted of such little value that, that you could have the impression that Paul is saying something is wrong with God's law. Well, the rest of chapter 7 is devoted to explaining the Christian's understanding of the law as it relates to his life. It's very personal. Paul's been very theological, and he's still going to be theological, but he suddenly gets very personal. I mean, there are dozens of personal pronouns just suddenly sweeping through the rest of chapter 7. It's I, me, I, this. This whole experience. But it's a universal experience in many ways. Because what he's saying is so central to the sanctified life, to real life, the way a Christian lives their life. Very practical. You're going to see um, lots of versions of Christianity in the world. There's all kinds of churches and groups and this is and that that have all different kinds of ways of doing things. Some of them are obsessed by minutiae involving rules and laws. In fact, when you join a lot of churches, you have to sign on that you won't do this, that, and this, and that, and 
uh, like, like you can't play with a deck of cards, for example. You can play Uno because it's different, but a deck of cards, the same kind that you might use to play poker with, you can't play rummy with because there's something particularly wicked about that deck of cards, those kind of things. The spiritual life after a while starts becoming defined by rules and those that don't do this and don't do that and don't do that are the good people and the people that secretly play rummy are really the bad people and uh, need to come forward to the altar and repent each week of that crime. Now, some people who react against that sort of church environment, they don't have any rules at all. In fact, uh, some churches are so loose that sin is never confronted and people can do pretty much whatever they want. And a, and a worldly frame of mind starts to get flaunted in certain places. Neither of those approaches is New Testament spirituality. Christianity is about life in Jesus Christ, living in him and for him. That means forsaking the things that he rejects, and I don't personally know how he feels about a deck of cards, so that's not an issue to me. And letting love govern all the relationships that we have, and love, we will learn as we go, actually does all that the law would demand, and more. And that's the secret. Chapter 7 is focused on the law-minded person, the rule person, the one who thinks that grace is a threat to personal holiness. And Paul says, no. The law that's misused and misunderstood, that's a threat to holiness. But is there something wrong with the law itself? Verse 7 of chapter 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? That is such a good question. Now, we just said in verse 5 that the law actually arouses sin in us. And it's true. It excites evil desires in people because people that are naturally rebellious when they have a new rule will rebel against that rule. If they never knew the rule was there, they wouldn't even think about it. So the law actually makes more sin sometimes. So we ask the question, is, is the law sin? Is there something wrong with God's law and he says no may it never be that's his favorite expression of no way he says is the law sin may it never be on the contrary I would not have come to know sin except through the law for I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said you shall not covet so the value of the law is that it is God's measuring rod it is his revealed moral will. So only when we measure ourselves by it do we understand what our true condition is and our true guilt. Now at this point, I'm not measuring myself by external acts anymore. And I'm not measuring myself by other people. But God's law gives me insight into how to think about me. And isn't it more important what God thinks about me than what I think about me? Paul specifically mentions only one of the Ten Commandments here, and interestingly, he picks the last of the ten. And what's unique about the last of the ten? It's the only one that is exclusively internal. And there's no way to measure outside how covetous a person is, unless they just go, you know, they like leer after things all the time. But I mean, there's no, there's no act. I mean, if you're worshiping an idol, you know, that's pretty obvious. And uh, if you're reading your horoscope every day, that's pretty obvious. You know, those kind of things. If you're 
screaming at your parents and not honoring them, that's, that's pretty obvious. If you're committing adultery and somebody catches you at least, that's pretty obvious. I mean, somebody else knows about it. Those kind of things. But coveting is so internal. Coveting is that desire, is that desire to possess something that's out of bounds for you. Something that God has not given you, but that you want to have. Uh, it could be somebody else's spouse, for example. It could be somebody else's talent, or somebody else's beauty, or somebody else's position, or somebody else's intellect, or somebody else's job, or somebody else's house, or somebody else's baseball card collection. I mean, it could be all kinds of things. In fact, one old wise theologian said, coveting is any inclination or thought contrary to the commandments of God, or the will of God, which covers a lot of space. That particular commandment just stopped Paul right in his tracks. And he looked at it and he said, that's me. I'm guilty. Now, down all the other commandments, you could say, well, I've never worshipped an idol. I've, I've always been a good boy at home and I've never committed adultery and I've never murdered anybody. And uh, Although he was guilty of that later. But um, all those kind of things, you could say, I didn't do all of that. In some way, I can convince myself that I'm pretty good. But when you get to coveting, he's just like, that's inside. I'm guilty of that. Now, for other people, it might be other commandments to stop you cold. Maybe you are an idolater. Maybe you do read the horoscope every day. Or maybe you bear false witness about somebody that you don't like. Maybe you dishonor your parents or whatever. All of it, however, has to do with that heart condition. That's why so much of the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus gave his first great sermon, so much of it is devoted to explaining the law and what it really means. Remember what he says? He goes through a whole list of things. He says, you know, adultery isn't a physical act. It's what's going on in your heart. Lust is adultery. He says, murder isn't taking a life. It's a heart that hates. That's murder. Just because you're afraid of the punishment and don't commit the act doesn't mean you're not guilty. You're guilty of murder when you hate someone. And he goes on and on down a whole list. So the law reveals us to ourselves if by God's grace we take an honest look at it and a look at ourselves. Now, in verse 8, sin as a power is pictured as a kind of an active force. In fact, Paul even uses uh, military terms. One translation uses, uses the term seizing, and that really is the idea. It's taking opportunity, seizing an opportunity. He says, sin, verse 8, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. Knowing the commandment didn't help in and of itself, in fact, sin, which is playing with that rebellious, anti-God nature, actually delighted in covetousness, and once Paul knew the rule, he felt that it actually intensified. He says, without the law, I didn't really feel all that covetous. Sin wasn't a big deal to me. It wasn't like a big part of me. I wasn't sitting there going, oh man, I'm coveting. He says, but when I dealt with the law and I looked at it honestly in my own life, suddenly it just, sin just sprang alive and seized me. Before I was aware, it seemed like I had it under the control, but when I read the law of God, it made it come alive. And I saw my sin everywhere. Now, is that bad? No, that's actually good. That's good. Verse 9. And I was once alive apart from the law, that's the way he felt, but when the commandment came, sin became alive, and I died. Now, he's using really clever language here. What does he mean I died? What does he mean sin became alive and I died? 
I think he has to be referring to that kind of death spoken of in chapter 6. His old wicked self, his sinful self, got to that point where it was condemned by God, so it had to die. And when he became a Christian, that contented, I'm a good person self died. He could no longer be self-satisfied. He could no longer be self-righteous. He could no longer say, well, I'm going to go to heaven because I'm a good person. Well, at least I'm not a bad person. He couldn't do that. Because he was a bad person. He realized by the aid of the law, and even the fact that sin got more wicked under that law, and he realized by the aid of the law and his own corruption there that he was a very great sinner. And every true Christian has come to that realization somewhere in their life. That's what makes us poor in spirit as the first of the blessed beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount. The way the sermon begins, blessed are who? The poor in spirit, the poverty-stricken in spirit. Why are they poverty-stricken? Because they've come to the realization that they have nothing of spiritual value to offer God. Nothing. And to those people, they will inherit the kingdom of God. Verse 10, this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. For sin, seizing opportunity again through the commandment, deceived me, and and through it, killed me. See, the commandment, verse 10 says, was supposed to result in life. That's how Paul had been brought up. The law of God is life, my boy. When you're Jewish and you're 12 years old, you become a son of the law. You are duty-bound to keep the law of God. And that was what Paul had been raised with. And indeed, what would actually be the case? Indeed, it would be life if he kept it. But when you make yourself what the Jews call a yoke fellow of the law, when you take the law on yourself, you've got to keep it. And what happens if you don't keep it? You're doomed. Instead of life, the law kills because sin, using the law, deceives and kills. He says sin deceives, I think, by fooling us into pridefully thinking that God is pleased by our self-righteousness. That's how sin tries to use law as a deception. It is a deception to believe that the law is a way to life because it is only for perfect people. It fools us into thinking our corruption is not serious, maybe because it's so common. And our failure then is further buried by wrong ideas we have about God being not as holy as he really is and all of that. Sin twists the law and twists it for our own destruction. But once the deceitfulness of sin is revealed, once grace by God, his gift, opens our eyes, we die. Then life is possible once again. So is the law evil then? No, verse 12. So then the law, he says, is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Nothing wrong with the law. The law is as good and as right and as true as the one who gave it. It is God's word. And it does good by revealing sin. Verse 13. Therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? May it never be. No! Rather, it was sin in order that it might be shown to be sin. 
by affecting my death through that which is good, that through the commandment sin might become utterly sinful. There's a lot of words there, but all he's saying is the law was used by sin to arouse my sinful nature, and then it was clear that I was a sinner. And that's a great benefit. Is there something wrong with the law about that? No. But sin is so corrupting that it's grabbing the law and using it and inflaming sin in my heart, and I realize then that I can't keep God's law. Sin is revealed as, as he says there at the end of verse 13, utterly sinful, a horror. So he's died, he's been killed, his self-righteous religious life is over, all that religious activity is done. Read Philippians chapter 3 sometime later today and you'll see exactly how Paul viewed his entire religious life, which was steeped in religion all through his young life. He said it was, it's rubbish, it's garbage to be thrown on the pile compared to the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ, my Savior. Now, verse 14 through 25, <laughs> they are a real exegetical challenge. Um, a, a, uh, an interpreter's nightmare if you rely on commentaries to find out what the Bible means. And the reason I say that is because there are so many different ways of understanding this little section here. There are three main camps. So I have to go through the camps because if I tell you just what my opinion is or my belief about this is, you'll go somewhere else and read exactly the opposite. So I'm just telling you there's different views of this, what it means here. What is Paul talking about in verse 14 through 25? He's talking about this battle with sin. Who, who is he when he's talking about this battle? Is, he, is this before he's a Christian? Is he a struggling, weak, crummy Christian? Or is he a godly Christian who's just fighting this battle? And those are the three basic views. One is that this has got to be a non-Christian. This has to be talking about Paul before he was a Christian. And that view comes mainly from the language of verse 14 where he says, We know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh sold into bondage to sin. Does that sound like a pagan? I think it sounds sort of like a pagan, doesn't it? That's the basis for that view. This may be the experience of a religious Jew, for example, trying to be perfected by the law but not able to do so. Sold into bondage to sin. The second view is that this is a, a carnal, fleshly, weak Christian, a believer experiencing no victory in his life because he's trying to live a holy life based on law and not grace. That's a very attractive view in terms of the context. He is functioning in the flesh, though he truly believes. And that person says it's got to be this carnal kind of Christian person because a godly person just doesn't struggle with sin like this. And then the third view is that this is a Christian, even a mature believer, just being honest about his struggle with sin. That it's still there. And he's fighting it every day. And it just doesn't quite go away. This view says that it's the universal struggle of every Christian struggling between his new nature and his old nature. Now, naturally, it's hard to be dogmatic when so many good people come down and anywhere in these three camps. So who's right? Well, let's deal with the language of verse 14. If it's describing a non-Christian, then the issue's over. It's a non-Christian. Uh, but I don't think it is. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh, sold into bondage to sin. There's a contrast here. Paul is contrasting himself with the law. What is the law? There's nothing wrong with the law. The law is spiritual, pure and simple. The law is holy, 
righteous and good, verse 12 said. He calls it spiritual, but he says, but I am of flesh. Now, flesh is a common word. If your Bible doesn't use the word flesh, you might have trouble with what we're going to be talking about because some modern translations don't like that word. That is the Greek word, sarx, flesh. It's a good word. Um, some modern translations don't like it. In fact, the NIV translates it, the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual. That is not what the text says. That's a really bad translation. He's not saying he's unspiritual. That's reading in. He's saying the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh. Flesh is used by Paul to describe that weak, fallen aspect of human nature. Flesh conjures up, and I think the word, the reason flesh is chosen is it conjures up bodily appetites, ideas about the body and our bodily desires, and it certainly includes that, but it also refers beyond just what you would obviously think of as the cravings of the flesh for alcohol or drugs or sex or something like that. Fleshly habits of the mind, fleshly ways of thinking, um, uh, sinful habits of mind and action that characterize an unsaved, unregenerate, unborn-again type person. Who you were before you knew Christ, a man apart from God. That's all there in the idea of flesh. He doesn't say, I'm in the flesh. See, that would be a non-Christian. He says, I'm of the flesh. In other words, I'm a human being who still has a fallen nature. But simply that he's of the flesh is just a part of who he is. Isn't that true of you? I know it's true of me. I'm of the flesh still. Yep, definitely there. So he's not saying I'm unspiritual. That's very confusing. Because he's about to say how spiritual he is. Inside. But then he says, sold in bondage to sin. That also sounds like sort of a horrible, under sin kind of person. But he doesn't say I'm under sin. He says, I'm sold in bondage to sin. That fleshy part of his nature is habituated to sin. It's a form of bondage. In other words, it keeps coming back. And if anybody here has sin that never keeps coming back, I mean, there might be a certain sin that never keeps coming back, but I mean, does all sin just go away forever if you're a Christian? I mean, you never have it coming back? Because it comes back to me. It's unshakable in the sense that it's, it's likely to just keep coming back again and again. And I think that's just a common... Christian experience. It certainly has been my experience. A Christian is a curious being because we have two natures struggling, two realities, and we have one body. Uh, we're this fallen yet redeemed person. We're alive, but our body is still dying. You know, when I got saved, I didn't get younger and more beautiful and more powerful and more vigorous. I'm still decaying and getting grayer and starting to go down. You know, I mean, I'm dying. Maybe sooner than I think. He, he's, a, he's a person in transition. He's, he's got this new life, but he's got this old life. And there's a time when Paul was exclusively just a sinner. That's all he was. He was an unregenerate person. He was not born again. He had no capacity to love God or to know God. He didn't want to. And that's where all of us start. Now, in glory in death or when Jesus comes back, he'll be exclusively a saint and won't have any tug of the flesh anymore. But in the in-between time, we have this conflicting blend of natures. I think a really helpful text to look at is in the next chapter, chapter 8. If you just flip over there real quick, 
Paul is discussing the creation and the creation exists under the curse of God. That's why things fall apart all the time. But which waits for the day of renewal. Creation is pictured kind of in human terms groaning and longing to be redeemed. Scientists tell us that everything is spinning down. You know, there's this law in the universe of entropy and everything. Every time energy is expended, energy is lost. And someday the whole universe, if, if, if nothing intervenes, will just be a medium, cool nothing because there won't be any energy left. Everything is lost every time it's used. And the creation groans and suffers under this entropy, this law of decline, which is imposed on it by God and, and the fall, after the fall of man as a curse on the world to wake us up to the fact that something's wrong here. That's why he did that. Verse 19 of chapter 8. The anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God, that means the return of Christ. For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but because of him who subjected it. God did that. In hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but we also ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons. And how does he define that adoption as sons? The redemption of our body. Aren't you waiting for your body to get redeemed? Don't you wish it would catch up to where your soul has been taken? I do. And that's what he's talking about. That's why the word flesh is such a good word. We are talking about bodies here. I could get into that in a lot more detail. I have my own weird ideas about the flesh and human nature and all that stuff, but I won't get into that right now because it's too goofy. But our bodies have not yet experienced redemption. Our, our soul is redeemed. Our flesh is not. It has to wait. So we are sinner saints while we wait. We have two natures struggling within us. Our souls have been made alive and God is this wonderful reality to us. We long for Him and we want to please Him and life centers around Him now. However, our bodies have not changed. Our memories are the same. We have habits. We don't have redeemed bodies yet. We are new, but that which is old is still clinging on. So what kind of war exists between our born-again self and the old flesh? with its cravings and outbursts and selfish habits. So yes, I believe verses 14 through 25 are describing a typical Christian's experience. Interesting too, because at verse 14 of chapter 7, Paul starts, um, the tenses change radically in the chapter. Before that, it's all past tense, but when he gets to this experience describing his own life, it's all present tense verbs, which to me says that he's talking about his own life even now when he writes. I think he's describing the Christian experience, the war that we all face, the now but not yet existence that we have to endure until glory engulfs us. And as I read, you will find two worthwhile things from verses 14 through 25. I'm just going to read it. And look for these two worthwhile things. One is God's law, and the other one is your true self, your deepest self. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh sold into bondage to sin. 
For that which I am doing, I do not understand, for I am not practicing what I would like to do. But I'm doing the very thing that I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not wish to do, I agree with the law, confessing that it is good. So now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which indwells me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For the wishing is present, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I wish, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not wish. But if I'm doing the very thing I do not wish, I'm no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wishes to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. But I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other with my flesh, the law of sin. Now he's not saying that, oh, you know, in my heart I totally believe the Bible, and with my body I never obey it. That's not what he's saying. He's just saying that it is a real struggle. Some have suggested that Paul is describing here a carnal Christian, a spiritual failure. Maybe, maybe he is, but I don't think so. Does anyone not identify with the way Paul describes the Christian life here? I mean, does anybody feel like, yeah, I used to be like that, but now I'm above all that now. Does anybody feel that way? I don't feel that way. Aren't we shocked by that old temper? Those old lusts? That gossipy habit? That old arrogance? That willful stubbornness? That covetousness? Sin, you know? in some ways different for each of us, yet common to all of us. It's not that real victory over sin isn't possible. It really is possible. I've had victory over certain kinds of sins in my life, and I know, I, I, don't, I don't know any sin that I don't know somebody that's had complete victory over it. Victory is not only possible, it's, it's a reality for Christians. In fact, chapter 6 told us how to get it. But even in godly living, there is still that flesh which just won't go away until the day of Christ Jesus. So we need to be careful about claims of sinlessness or perfect victory and all of that kind of stuff. I've met people, you know, that I haven't committed a sin in 11 years, those kind of things. You know, there are people out there that like to say things like that. And then you say, what about lying? But um, <laughs> some people have just really been able also just to put on a really good show, a really good show, a really good external. They learn all the language and, and uh, play the Christian game really well and can say the right terminology and they know the whole thing. But you know, at some point, Toto goes over there and pulls the curtain away and you see the real wizard, you know. Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. <laughs> That's the real me. What are we left with at the end of chapter 7 after describing this? Humility, I hope. Humility and compassion for the weak and the frail. You know, to see Christians cut off other people, the other believers, because they're weak. You're too weak for me. I'm better than that. I don't need you. That's sad. But most of all, I think what we find here is thanksgiving. 
Notice verse 24. He doesn't say, what shall set me free? He says, who shall set me free from the body of this death? And the answer in verse 25 is Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord because Christ has redeemed me and will save me and will continue to lead me. What does it say in Philippians 1.6? He who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. That's a process that's going to continue happening. Isn't it wonderful that a whole section devoted to struggling with sin ends on a note of thanksgiving? Have you ever thought about that? It's because if you're born again, your place is sure in Christ. Your old self has been crucified with him. And it won't be there in the end. So thanks be to God who will free us from this body of death. The law of God is good. There are things in us that are not good. To live a sanctified life then requires the right means, the right choices, the right attitude, the right kind of discipline. We need a healthy respect for the weakness of our own flesh. We need to not rely on fleshly religious practices to hinder genuine spirituality. It's a mistake to live a law-based rather than a faith-based spiritual life. Because a law-based spiritual life will be one of constant frustration. Or it will harden into a judgmental and prideful arrogance. And that's not the law's fault. It's our fault when that happens. But faith-centered spirituality focuses on Jesus himself. Not that the law is not important, but that's not the focus. The focus is on Christ and living with him and for him in his presence. It does not deny the law. It does not ignore the law. The law is holy, righteous, and good. It is God's moral heart revealed. It's a wonderful mirror and a measure to check our lives with, but it can't be the center. Sanctification is not found in the old letter, but in the newness of the Spirit. And that's where chapter 8 takes us, the place of the Holy Spirit in all of this. That's for next time. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your law, which is so powerful and so good, true and righteous in every aspect of it. Let it be our, our measurement tool, but only a tool to lead us closer to you as we see our own need of you. And let us be thankful that Jesus Christ, by his death on the cross, has freed us from the body of this death, and one day we will shuck it off and get a brand new one that has no inclination towards wickedness but will be free in righteousness to rejoice in your very presence. What an awesome promise that is. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.